Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. You know, today um, being Easter, Resurrection Sunday, it is the day we remember and celebrate the most vital, caring, gracious, merciful, compassionate, loving act humanity has ever known. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get into God's Word today. And if you want to follow along with us, um, there's a link that you can go to to grab some notes um, that, that people normally have. It's rccphoenix.com media. That's rccphoenix.com media. You can go and download the notes there right now, and you can go through um, the, the message with the notes and we can do it all together if you want to. If not, just buckle up and uh, enjoy the ride as we go on into God's Word today. So <clears throat> I spent um, about 19 years in full-time what we would call vocational ministry. And the last eight years has been in kind of what I would call a bivocational role, which I'm working full-time in corporate America and also doing ministry stuff in addition to that. And one of the things that I've, that I've learned is that um, there is a real sense for people who have followed the Lord for a really long time, there is a real um, opportunity for us to talk about uh, Easter and the resurrection and the, um, uh, the burial and the crucifixion of Christ as if it's, you know, kind of just something that we already know about something that we kind of glaze over. It's almost, you know, if I were to ask anybody watching this, um, this, uh, this you know, simulcast or this live cast right now, if, if you're a believer, what is Easter about? You would probably say something to the effect of, you know, the Bible story about Jesus dying and raising from the dead. <clears throat> In some way, shape, or form, probably 99% of, percent of us would respond like that. However, it's very easy for people who have been in the ministry a long time, like myself, or have been believers a long time, to just kind of give that answer and be like, yeah, that's just what it is. It's kind of just answers to a test, answers to a, you know, an exam, or like bullet points on a slideshow or something. But what I want us to do is I want us to kind of go back through some of these things and let us not take them for granted. Why? Because the first line of your notes, if you have them there, is, it says this, as believers in Christ, it's easy to fall into the trap of assuming that everyone around us has the same knowledge and understanding that we have about God. It's very easy for us to um, fall into the trap of assuming that everyone has the same knowledge and understanding that we have about God. And this is um, very, it's kind of a funny story, but it's, it's a great example of it. You know, in my corporate America job, uh, when you ask somebody, you know, we'll just pick a name, you know, John Doe, we'll ask John, hey, John, how's your day? Uh, John has an option to say, you know, anything good. Oh, I'm tired. It was a long night last night, or I'm doing really good today. Um, but if John is a believer, he, he's probably inclined to, if he's been in church for a while, to respond a little bit differently. So, you know, so John walks in down the hallway of the office like, hey, John, how are you? And he's like, blessed. And he gives you the, like the little church lingo answer. And if he's super churchy, he's been in church for a really long time, he might hit you with the, uh, I'm blessed and highly favored. You know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> and this is really funny because a friend of mine at work did this, and it was right at the beginning of when I was getting to know him, and a guy who was not a Christian, an unbeliever, 
who I had been talking to about the Lord and coming to church, he heard uh, my friend say he was blessed and he actually went and got me and my friend together and say, hey, you guys might have something in common here because I heard him say the word blessed, the church word. There might be an opportunity of you guys to have some type of relationship here. It was a real funny thing to, to have happen, but this is kind of what I'm talking about is that we have a specific lingo. We have a dialect. We have certain things that we talk about in a certain way as if they're just known by everybody, but that's not always the case. So what I want to do today is while, we, while we're here talking about the resurrection and the crucifixion and the death of Christ, I want us not to skate over those things. I want us to go back and take just a few moments to intently focus on these three things, okay? And the first thing, if you're in your notes there, the first thing that I want to review together and the point number one there is the Bible. It's the Bible. Now, why would we focus on the Bible? Well, let me ask you a question. How do you and I know the story of Jesus? How do we know that he was born of a virgin? How do we know that he lived a sinless life? He performed all of these miracles. How do we know that he was, <clears throat> that he was betrayed by Judas and that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane until it appeared as if blood was his sweat? How do we know that that um, he was taken and beaten and crucified and buried and then risen again and appeared to people. How do we know that? Well, you could say, well, I heard it in church or I heard it from a pastor or I heard it from a friend of mine who's a Christian. But ultimately, every one of those people who repeat the story have to hear it from the Bible. You know, there's a lot of noise in our culture um, talking about the Bible. And is it, is it valid? Is it legitimate? Is it, um, is it something that can be trusted? We hear a lot of, a lot of people who are anti-Christianity um, or anti-God say, you know, oh, the Bible's been corrupted or, or it's been translated so many times. How can you even believe it? And maybe you, if you're a believer watching this right now, you may have asked yourself that question and maybe have been even afraid to ask it out of your mouth. Like, Man, how do we know it's true? Or if you're someone who's watching and you're not a believer and you're saying, I have those same questions. Well, let's dig into that just a little bit. Because of the age of the Bible, and it was written more than 1900 years ago, and we're going to specifically talk about the New Testament here tonight. It was written more than 1900 years ago. It would be classified as something that historians and archaeologists would, would say is an ancient text. Now, how do we verify that ancient texts are actually real, are actually authentic, and are not messed with or changed in any way? Well, there's a number of different ways that this happens, and there's a lot of scholars who spend their entire careers critiquing text and making, it sure, making sure that these ancient texts are actually um, consistent with the original writings. There's many ways they do that, but one specific way, and this is the next line of your notes here, it's one major factor in determining if ancient works of literature are accurate is the number of verified and consistent copies that exist. That's the number of verified and consistent copies that exist. 
During my study, I ran across several ancient texts that were um, some from historians during the times of Jesus. Some of them were from the, the emperors of Rome who had things they wanted written down and passed on to um, the generations that were followed. Some of them were, were Jewish historian texts. And all of these texts that I looked at had 10 or fewer copies that we have in our hands today in the year 2020, fewer than 10 of these copies of these texts in our possession today. All the scholars who reviewed them say, man, we have 10 texts that have lasted almost 2,000 years, and they have verified the accuracy of these, of these texts. One of the most impressive um, texts that we have because of the number of, of copies that we have in our possession today is a book you might be familiar with if you had to read it possibly in high school or college. It was a book by Homer called The Iliad. Today in our possession, just of The Iliad, there we, we know of right now over, uh, just a, a little over 600 copies of that book, The Iliad. Now compare those two. Those first three categories of books had 10 or less, and everyone was excited that we had that many copies and verified their accuracy. And here we sit with Homer's The Iliad, and it's a great literary work you know, that's, that, that has been in, in schools for, for many, many years, many decades. And there are more than 10 times that amount of this book that would show that Homer's The Iliad, what the, what the original writings were. But there is a book that not only has more than just 10, and not only just more than Homer's The Iliad, in fact, the Greek New Testament has the most verified copies of these ancient texts. The next line of your notes, archaeologists and researchers have discovered, get this, more than 5,500 verified copies of the Greek New Testament, which is 10, nearly 10 times the amount of Homer's The Iliad, which is more than 10 times of the first initial ancient text we talked about. On top of the 5,500 copies and fragments and parchments that we have, the different, the, the different uh, parchments and um, copies that we have of the New Testament, on top of that, the New Testament was also quoted countless times in other sources of ancient literature. Now, why am I talking about this? Because I, I want to bring your attention to something that a biblical scholar and a professor, his name was Bruce Metzger, he was a professor at the Princeton Theological Seminary. I want to bring your attention to something that he says. He said this, If all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament, all 5,500 copies and fragments that we have today were destroyed, the other sources, meaning the people who repeated the New Testament, would be sufficient alone by themselves to reconstruct practically the entire New Testament. That is amazing. That is uh, above and beyond physical evidence that we have that the Bible is in fact true, it is in fact authentic, and it has not been altered or tampered in any way. Metzger, that same professor, notes that there are, it's the next line in your notes there, 20,000, 
20,000 lines of text in the New Testament. And only 40 lines have variations. Now, what do those variations mean? Those variations are spelling errors. Now, if you came to me and said, Matt, here's what I want you to do. There's no technology. You can't type on a keyboard. You can't type on your phone. You can't take pictures of it. Here's a copy of the New Testament. And I want you by yourself to take a pen and a piece of paper. And I want you to write the entire New Testament because it's the only way we can pass it around to the members of Roots Community Church here in Phoenix. I guarantee you that in about three and a half minutes, my hand is going to cramp. That's first and foremost. But the second thing I'm going to guarantee you is that I'm probably going to misspell words. I still do this today. I before E except after C. Anybody remember the, 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 gr- the grammar rule? I before E except after C? I know we got some teachers in our church, and I'm sure you're probably um, wincing at me right now and about, my, <laughs> about some of my grammar, some of the ways I've spelled things in the past. But the way um, these textual variants, the variations in the New Testament are nothing more than, uh, than words that are spelled differently or incorrectly between someone who is copying the text. There's a Greek scholar. His name is D.A. Carson. He sums it up this way. The purity of text in the New Testament is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by these variants, by these misspellings from from scribes who were right handwriting the New Testament. That boils down to something massive. This means the New Testament that we have, that you and I have in our possession is within 99.5% accuracy to the original writing. Did you hear what I said? What you have in your hand, the Bible that you have in your bag, on your shelf, on your nightstand, the app that's on your phone is within 99.5% accuracy to the original writing and that is unquestioned throughout Theology and biblical scholars and archaeology and history, unquestioned. So before we do anything else, here's what I want to do. Can we just not say, oh, the Bible says, oh, yeah, I got one in my bag. Oh, yeah, I, uh, I think I read it sometime this week. Before we just say, oh, yeah, the Bible says, can we stop for a second and thank God that we have something in our possession that communicates to us the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Because without it, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't have any idea without God's Word and without Scripture. Can we stop for a second and just, and just remember and think of what kind of labor of love it is and that it was for these scribes to handwrite the, uh, the Scriptures and pass them around? the people who saved them and kept them, and the people who have read them over time, can we just thank, um, have a, a sense of gratitude towards them and to God for providing us a way to read about Christ? We're going to do that together. I'm going to invite Brian to come just for a moment, and I'm going to ask him to lead us in a short prayer, and I want you to join with us in a prayer thanking God for His Word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Bible. We recognize that it is your word. It is true. 
that it is powerful, that yes. it's life-changing, that it breathes life into each and every one of us. We are grateful that we have all the everything that we need to navigate through changing times in life. We thankful God that your word brings wisdom. It yes. equips us. It encourages us. It empowers us and corrects us. We thank you, God, that your word is accurate, mm -hmm. that it never changes, and it is so powerful that it can change yes, lives, Jesus. heal hearts, and break chains. Yes, We're very grateful, and let us not forget, or let us not even have the slight appreciation, God, that the word is everything to us. It is what we build our life on, and so we are grateful to have that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Next time you pick up that Bible and go to sit with it just before you open it, I encourage you to do this. Thank God for His Word. The second thing I want to draw our attention to today is number two in your notes there, and it's the crucifixion. The crucifixion. The torture and death of crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. Now, you may not know this, but... Um, we, we mainly remember the crucifixion and the practice of crucifying people because it was how Jesus was put to death. But the Roman government spent many years refining and perfecting this particular brand of torture and death. They were so adamant that it would work and that it would kill someone that they had a law. The Roman soldiers who were commissioned to carry out the executions by crucifixion, did so with the understanding that if the criminal survived the torture, they themselves would be killed. If the person they were crucifying, that they had beaten, that they had nailed to that cross, that they had hung there, if that person somehow, some way survived, they understood that they we're going to pay the price in the stead. They were going to be killed. This meant that the Roman soldiers were exceptionally brutal. They wanted to make sure that all of the, the torture, all of the beatings, all of the details that were, that were gathered and encompassing in crucifixion were met because they knew that if they didn't, their own life would be on the line. <clears throat> If you've been in church for any length of time or even attended an Easter service, you no doubt have heard about the agony that Jesus endured while he was from his beating and while he was hanging on the cross and the crucifixion. He was beat with a braided whip, some people call a flagrum, and other people call a cat of nine tails. This whip had leather straps, and on the end of the straps, the Romans would tie chips of sharp, sharp objects. They would take pieces of bone or metal or rock. And then what they would do is it was designed that when they would bring the whip on, onto the back of the person who was being beaten, that those sharp objects wouldn't just scratch or cut, but that they would stick into the flesh. And it was designed so that the whip had to be ripped out. And when it was ripped out, chunks of skin and tissue were ripped out of the back, exposing sometimes the bone and kidneys and organs. Some people didn't make it through the beatings. Some people actually died before they got to crucifixion because the beatings were so intense. <clears throat> you may also know about the physical agony that Jesus experienced on the cross. 
And the reason that he was stood upright and, and people who were crucified had their hands nailed is because the, the Romans wanted the weight of their body to sink down on their lungs and it was hard for them to breathe. And so what they would do is when the nails were in their hands and feet, they would be forced to use that as leverage to rip their skin to try to just get enough space to grasp a breath and then drop again, tearing their skin and their tissue and their arms and their hands and their feet. The idea of crucifixion was for the person to suffer tremendously and suffocate. It's the next line in your notes there. It was designed for the person to suffer tremendously and to suffocate. But there was one thing that during my study uh, about two years ago, I, I discovered. It was something I never knew. You may have known that about the, the way crucifixion worked and about suffocation and with the nails and the feet and the hands. You may have already known that, but something that I didn't know was this. Any person who was sentenced to death by crucifixion immediately lost their privileges of citizenship when they picked up the cross. Rome is this massive empire and they've occupied all these lands and, and it's, a, it's a superpower, a global superpower at the time of Jesus, uh, Jesus living in his death and his resurrection. And they had, they had laws that benefited some of their citizens just as we as uh, people here in the United States have laws. You know, we have the right to a speedy trial, right to an attorney, and certain legal rights that we have before we go into being prosecuted in a court or in front of a judge or a jury. Now, these, these, these privileges are unique to us, and they're not the same ones that were, that were um, uh, applicable to the Roman uh, citizenship, anyone who was a citizen of Rome. However, they did have some privileges. Whenever someone was, was sentenced to death by crucifixion, they were flogged, beaten with that whip, and when they picked up their cross, they lost all of their rights as a citizen. Here's what that means. Various historians tell us that as many people who were being crucified were carrying their cross on the way to the point where they were going to be crucified, people from the city were allowed to come out and do whatever they wanted. People were free to do whatever they wanted to the charged criminal without punishment, without punishment, as they carried their cross. There are accounts of some of the people who were being led away to be crucified that said they were relieved to get to the part of crucifixion because the beatings they took from the public was so bad on the way to them being crucified. If you can imagine Jesus, yes, he had been beaten beyond anything that would make him recognizable. His body more than likely is in shock. He's lost an intense amount of blood. His heart is racing and he's been forced to carry this cross and to go be crucified where nails would be put in his hands and feet. But along the way, people from the city were allowed to come and hit him, to throw objects at him, to spit in his face, to kick him, 
to throw sharp objects on the ground and force him to walk across them, push him down. We even see in the account of Jesus on the way to when he's being crucified, he, he falls down and, and he has to have someone pick up the cross and take it the rest of the way with him because he is in such poor condition. There Jesus was, sustaining beatings, whippings, insults, physical injury from the people he was going there to save. I don't know about you, but when I read that one, and when I found that in my study, it really, it really cooked my noodle. It really put me in a position of, you've got to be kidding that the people he went to go save participated. It wasn't just the government. It wasn't just the soldiers. It wasn't just this angry mob. There, was this, there were people in the city who came out and assaulted him and said all kinds of things about him and did unspeakable things to him. And they were the ones he was going there to save. Before we say, oh yeah, he was crucified on the cross. Can we just stop for a second? As a church and as believers or whoever might be watching this, can we just stop for a second? And before we nonchalantly drive down the road and see, oh, there's a cross up on a steeple by a church or one on the front of a building of another sanctuary somewhere that is in our town. Before we before we decorate our homes with you know, an artistic looking cross or before we take a charm of a cross and wrap it around our neck nonchalantly and go, oh yeah, that's the cross. Can we just stop for a second and understand the gravity of what he endured? And can we not nonchalantly just go, oh yeah, the cross, it's something I recognize. Can we stop a second and be grateful? I'm going to ask Brian to come back. And together, we're going to pray another prayer of thanksgiving together. And we're going to thank God for the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for coming down here to earth and taking on human form and enduring all that you've done. We thank you, God, that without that, without the act that you you courageously went through, without the crucifixion, we would, we would not have salvation. We wouldn't have life. We wouldn't be free from our sins, our thoughts, and the things that hold us or, or bind us, oh God. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. That, that incredible, incredible act that saved all of human, all, all mankind from, from sin and from death. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Remind us, oh God, what the cross means. It's more than just a fashion statement. It's more than a decorative piece that we put on the wall or we, or we walk around and show God. It's more than that. I pray, God, that we remember the importance, that we remember what it symbolizes, our freedom, our salvation, and life. We thank you, God, for what you've done. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. I'm praying that the next time you see across anywhere that it grips your heart and you remember what Jesus endured for all of us. The next time we say, oh man, I messed up. God, can you please forgive me? We have the ability to say that and be granted forgiveness because of what was done on the cross.
The third thing I want to bring back to our remembrance, it's number three there on your notes, is this. The empty tomb. The empty tomb. I uh, did some digging on what happens to a body after someone passes away and dies. And it is uh, pretty gross. If you're in the medical field, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're not, you can probably imagine. But after someone dies, their body immediately begins deteriorating. Begins deteriorating. Blood stops flowing and pools at the lowest point of the body. Someone's laying face down on a bed and they have passed away. The, the blood begins to run to the, the front part of their torso, the front part of their legs, just from gravity. Blood stops flowing and pulls the lowest point of the body and joints gradually tighten until they're fully stiff within 12 hours of passing. So within 12 hours of someone passing, their blood has pooled in the lowest place and their, their joints are completely stiff. I'll spare you the details that I found out of the various insects that descend on a body and what they do to rotting flesh. But immediately after dying, there starts a chain reaction that includes bacteria that will begin to consume the body over an extended period of time. This is something that happened to Jesus, just as it would anyone else. You can imagine as Joseph of Arimathea has gotten permission to take Jesus' body and put it in a tomb. You can imagine as Mary, his mother, weeps and they pull his body down and pull the nails out of him that hung him on that cross. The nerve endings for his muscles are no longer firing because he's, he's dead. His heart is stopped. He is, he is 100% dead. His face begins to sink in. His jaw begins to drop open. He's, un- he's obviously unable to close it. The flesh is pale and the blood is running all over anyone who comes to try to wrap him up, put his stiff hands into a burial position and wrap him and put him in the tomb. One of the things that we have to remember, we have to remember, is that not only when Jesus got up from that resurrection did he conquer death, hell, and the grave, not only did he conquer those things from a spiritual and eternal perspective, he got up with that physical body and reversed the effects that were happening to his decomposing flesh. Jesus' resurrection reversed the physical effects of death. How do we know? Because when he got up, he went to people that he knew and they recognized him. They recognized him. He showed them the, the nail scars in his, in his wrists and the, the scars and the marks on his back and on his body from where he had been beaten and crucified. He, re, he has the power over death, hell, and the grave. And for some of us, we go, man, that's great. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a lot more sense to me when, when I pass and go into eternity and we're grateful for that. But on a very physical and human level, the resur- Jesus' resurrection reversed the physical effects of death. That must have been an amazing sight to see, especially for the people who buried him. Then, 
Jesus does something remarkable. After he raises from the dead and he removes the stone from the front of the tomb, he goes and tells people, go and spread the message. But who does he tell? He tells two women. He first appears to women after his resurrection. Why is this important? Because women were not held in high regard in the Roman culture. They were not. For an example, women were not allowed to testify in court. They were not allowed to testify in court because they were deemed as unreliable witnesses for no other reason except for the fact that they were women. There's a lot of statements that Jesus made when he walked out of that tomb and left it empty. He conquered, he, he made a statement of, I've overcome everything. I've overcome death, hell, and the grave. But he also said, I'm not worried about anything along those lines that pertain to you. And I'm also not, I'm also not anywhere interested in following or being bound by your natural or cultural laws either. Jesus put the, the greatest message of human history in the mouths of people that the culture deemed as unreliable. I don't know about you, but that makes me excited because if I had to, if, if there was a checklist of these things of being ultimately reliable and ultimately um, trustworthy on every single thing I've ever done in my whole life, I would fail miserably. But Jesus has chosen and seen fit to put the message of the gospel into an unperfect person like like me and unperfect people like you and that is a reason for us to celebrate he didn't come and choose the highest uh, qualified people the people with the highest potential the highest education the highest degree no he went to the people that the culture thought were unreliable and said you go tell the tell everybody tell my disciples my friends the people that i have poured my life into go and tell them that i have risen it is the most important message of human history and he chooses to distribute it how he sees fit and I am insanely grateful that he would do that he chooses the foolish things to confound the wise and that is I am a great living example of that scripture he chose somebody lowly like me to present the gospel to you here today and I'm sure if any one of us examine our life, we would find imperfections. And us as believers in Christ can be very grateful that He chooses the simple things to confound the wise. I'm so grateful for that. And we're going to thank God for the empty tomb. I'm going to invite Brian one more time to come back and lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for the empty tomb. God, we thank You for the resurrection. We thank You that... The empty tomb symbols that death could not hold you. We thank you, God, that Jesus, it also demonstrates your power over death and how we, we too have the power and the victory over death. We thank you, God, that when you bodily rose from the grave, that it also holds promise for us as believers. Yes. We thank you, God, for all that you're mm -hmm. doing and continue to do here. We thank you that the empty tomb still means a great deal to us as believers in this day and age. We thank you for all that you're doing and all that you continue to do. We are so grateful. We hold dear to the promise, and we're grateful for the fact that you have rose from the dead. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. The next time you think about how confident we are of being in heaven with God for eternity and not separated from Him in hell because we're believers and followers of Christ, I want you to just not say that out loud and and just be like, yeah, I'm going to heaven, wait. We have the ability to be reconciled with God because there's an empty tomb. Let's be grateful for all three of those things. Why in the world would he do this? Why in the world would he endure such torment? Why in the world would he endure such suffering? And if you're following on your notes, it's number four. And it's one simple word, a word that we throw around loosely and misuse greatly today in our current Western Americanized culture. And that's this, love. Plain and simple. Why did he do any of this? Because of love. The scripture makes it very plain that God is love. Now, let's be very clear, and I even put it in your notes there so we can write it down and not forget it. God isn't the feeling we have when love is expressed. He is the creator, the embodiment, and ultimate example of true, pure, and absolute love. A well-known pastor here in the States, Tim Keller, recently made a statement and he said that God is the, the embodiment. He is the essence of love. And I love how he put that. He is the essence of love. He is it. He's greater than a feeling. He's greater than an emotion. He is love. You probably saw at the top of the notes and at the beginning of the message that it's titled, the message title today is Before We Even Knew. And you may say, man, we've, we've walked down kind of a, 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 a few things to remember, the Bible and the cross and the empty tomb and making sure that we understand the gravity of those things. But why in the world would this message be called Before We Even Knew? <clears throat> I want to read a scripture in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8 that says this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
Why is this message entitled Before We Even Knew? It's because of this. Before we even knew that we needed salvation and that we couldn't pay the price for our own sins, God provided the cross for us. Before we knew we needed a written, verifiable, and historically accurate account of Jesus' life, God provided the Bible, His Word, Scripture for us. Before we even knew heaven was a possibility and eternal life was available to us after our physical death, God provided an empty tomb for us. Before we even knew we needed any of that, God put things into place to provide for us. We celebrate today because of God's Word. Yes, we celebrate today because Jesus died and because He rose again. That is the essence of what Resurrection Day and Holy Week is all about. But we also celebrate Because before we even knew that we needed Him, again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He not only gave us the opportunity to be reconciled to Him, to escape the punishment of God's wrath for sin in hell, He not only gave us the way to avoid that and get to heaven, He did it all before we even knew we needed it, while we were still sinners, while I was still trying to do my own thing and live my own way and go my own route and and do what I wanted to do with my life because I only get one of these and it's mine. While I was still in that rebellious, immature position of my heart, God had already provided a way out. And He has done the same thing for you, my friend. He's done the same thing for you. If you are someone who's a believer in Christ, we should be thanking God for the provision He made for us because before we even knew we needed it, He put it into place so that we could have it. It's an amazing plan It's beyond genius. It has eternal ramifications. And He has preserved the message for us in His Word. He has preserved uh, a way for us to be forgiven of our sins through the cross. And He has preserved eternity for us through the empty tomb. And I don't know about you, but I celebrate today. But my heart bursts forward with gratitude It bursts forth with thanksgiving. It bursts forth with thankfulness to the God who would provide all the things that I would need before I ever knew that I needed Him. I don't know about you, but that is the definition of love. Why? Because God did all of that while we were still sinners knowing that we could choose to walk away from His gift of eternity. Knowing full well that we could look at it and reject it and go our own way, He still went through all of the pain and the torment and the torture because He wanted you to have the opportunity to come to Him, to submit to Him, to give your life to Him completely. 
one of the great American apologists. I call him American because he lives here now, but he's originally from India, spent time in Canada, and, and is somebody that we ultimately just love and admire here. And personally, I love and admire is Ravi Zacharias. He made a great statement. He said, there is no love without a choice. And God loved you enough that he sent his son to die. And you have a choice to receive that gift or walk away from it. I am praying that if you feel that tug, if you're somebody who does not know the Lord, who, who does not have a relationship with Christ, who has not submitted their life to Him fully, you may be like, oh yeah, I believe that and I said a prayer somewhere, but you have not submitted your life, your will, given, given uh, God everything that you have and made Him the Lord of your life. If you have not done that, I pray that if you feel that thing that is pulling you towards Him, that is the Holy Spirit drawing you, my friend. And I pray that you would respond to that. If you don't know how to do that or you don't know anybody at a pastor or a church or you don't have any family members or friends who are believers in Christ, please reach out to us. It doesn't matter if you do and you don't feel comfortable talking to them, please reach out to us. We would be honored to walk you through and introduce you to the only person, the only person who has loved us enough to give his life for us, Jesus Christ.